from the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. We thought about doing some sort of uh, amplified microphone in the park, and then we realized, well, for 1,900 years, people preached outdoors and it worked just fine, so we'll just try for it. So if you ever can't hear, feel free to do one of these and I'll, I'll do my best. Um, yeah, just a couple more announcements. Yeah, we decided to give Matt Brown the weekend off. No, he's out of town. Uh, we, we thought we'd change things up, uh, make a little bit more time for fellowship, for activities, sports afterward. So feel free to do volleyball or kickball or just enjoy some donuts and more coffee. Uh, if you're new here, we're glad to have you at Capital City in the park. We don't always meet in a park, but it's been nice this summer. Uh, and then let's see, there's one more thing. I have been working with St. Mark's to see if they would reconsider. I think uh, our, the church that we meet out of, you know, they shut down when COVID was new and everything was scary. It still is. Um, but I think everything was just shutting down and they're like, all right, well, we're just pretty much, you know, shut down until a vaccine comes out. Now that most churches, uh, you know, with a lot of safety precautions are meeting, you know, with masks on and all sorts of other distancing precautions, I'm asking them if they would reconsider since it doesn't look like we'll have a vaccine in the next six months that most people are able to get. So we'll see what they say. And if not, we're hoping to move into some other place by the time it gets cold so that Zoom can be a, uh, a backup for us. But we don't intend to go full time on Zoom if we don't have to. It'd be nice to go into a meeting space. We could wear masks and do all the other guidelines. And then we could also stream it for those who aren't comfortable. So that's kind of the thought for now. We'll keep updating you slowly. Um, older church bureaucracies move a little slower. So we'll see what we can or we can have with St. Mark's. But yeah, we invite you guys to get more donuts and coffee afterward and hang out, volleyball, kickball, or just chat. So, all right. Um, so I'm opening today's sermon with this question. What do you do when your last ray of hope disappears? So kind of a darker sermon for an outdoor uh, series in the park. What do you do when your last ray of hope disappears? So last week we asked, why do bad things happen to good people? And we looked at how if we could really see with a God's eye view, we would understand why hardship happens to us and others. But the problem is we cannot see with a God's eye view. Sometimes this life gives us answers and sometimes not. But don't make a mistake on this. God has his purposes, even if they're foggy to us, even if we don't understand them now or at all in this life. So for those who couldn't be here last week, we started the story of Joseph one of the most interesting, like deepest character arcs in the entire Bible, except for possibly the story of David. It's a very compelling story. It starts in around the mid-30s of Genesis. I highly encourage you to go check it out. Um, so he, last week, what we talked about is how he went from the favorite son of Jacob, the most responsible, you know, capable one who was able to manage his dad's business, all sorts of money going in and out. He was just great at dealing with it. He went from there to being sold as a slave in Egypt, all in one chapter. And you think, how could this happen? His own brothers, jealous of his position, jealous of his status, stole his you know, special cloak, which we've turned into this technicolor dream coat in our modern Broadway version. It was probably not a rainbow colored cloak just to ruin that image for you. It was a special cloak. You could tell from a long way off that he was a special you know, son with a special job, but it was not rainbow colored. Um, they stole his cloak, they dipped it in goat's blood, leading their father to believe that he had been killed and torn up by wild animals. It's a pleasant idea. Uh, and then they sold him to slave traders. It was a double shame because not only did they sell their own brother, 
but they, they sold him to their own relatives. The relatives, these slave traders that they sold him to were his first cousins once removed and second cousins. So in this one story, he goes from the esteemed son to the betrayed one, and he's sold for pieces of silver by his own brothers. And you think, how can this possibly be good, right? If we believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, how can this possibly be a part of God's plan? And we, I think in our own lives, we ask that question a lot. How can COVID possibly be part of God's plan? How can my suffering or my parents' suffering, my friend's suffering, possibly be a part of any so-called good plan by a good and loving creator? Why does God allow injustice? And I'm sure Joseph asked this question as his own ankles were in the stocks and he's on his way down to Egypt. He must have asked, why me? How can this possibly be part of your plan, God? So he's brought to Egypt, and when he arrived, he had both the fortune and the ill fortune of being sold to a very important person whose name was Potiphar. Uh, he's a higher-up Egyptian officer, and he's called the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. So to, to make it make sense in modern terms, think of him as the head of the CIA or the Secret Service. He's the head of intelligence. The captain of the guard was meant to keep Pharaoh keep the king safe and to be aware of all the intrigue and all the plots that might upset the order of the king. So he's sort of a high up, he's the highest intelligence officer in Egypt, and that's who he's sold to. He's one of the three, this Potiphar character is one of the maybe the three to five characters that the king of Egypt would have seen on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so you could say that he's kind of a big deal, to quote a certain pop culture reference. Um, I'm hearing a few laughs. Some people got it. All right. Um, in our society, when Chattel slavery still existed, this would be like being sold in our own government to the head of the CIA or to be like a cabinet member slave or something like that. Um, so up to this point, we've been given two clues about Joseph's personality. We know that his older brothers find him annoying uh, in that way that younger people that are exceptionally talented can sometimes be. You know, sometimes it's because they're actually annoying or sometimes it's because they so outshine you in so many ways that you just can't stand to be around them. We don't know which, but somehow Joseph is one of those. He's annoying in that he's exceptionally talented and outshined his brothers. And uh, we also know that his ability to manage the business was just you know, in incredible. Um, and this ability has not gone unnoticed either by his father or we'll see in Egypt. So already at the age of 17, he was carrying out essentially the man of the house's um, role. All of the money, all of the business, all of the trade, he was overseeing it. He had a knack for it, and that quickly went uh, noticed in Egypt as well. The Bible says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All of his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything that he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. 
So the, the notion, it's almost like a little joke in the Bible there. The notion is that Joseph is so good that Potiphar is able to unload all of his duties onto Joseph. And the only thing that keeps Potiphar even thinking about anything is like, well, what am I going to eat for dinner tonight? Like that's the only thing left for him to even worry about because everything else is taken care of. Uh, his household was blessed. Everything that Joseph touched tended to turn to gold. Uh, some people are like that, right? I don't know if you've known any of these people that can drive you mad. Like every endeavor they start, every business they start, every everything they try to do just sort of works out and turns out great for them. Um, it's uh, it's sort of like a, a he's like an ancient Warren Buffett, right? The Midas touch. Everything he does works out. Um, and it was a habit he would always have. So as terrible, terrible as it would be to be sold into slavery, Joseph is starting to find in that terrible setting, he's starting to find a small silver lining in that as terrible as it is to have your entire life ripped away from you, he is now this you know, respected servant in this house. He has comfortable accommodations. He's in a position of trust and importance. And as terrible as it is to have your life ripped away, at least if you're going to be a slave, that's not the worst. It, it could get a lot worse, you could say. That's, it's not the worst position to be in if you are to be a slave in Egypt. But then it all goes wrong again. There's something at this point that we have not yet learned about Joseph. And that's that he is handsome. The Bible says, Joseph was very handsome and a well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Quite the situation for him to be in. Um, I'm reading from the NLT translation here. Um, sometimes the more uh, literal translations can be a little bit more wooden and, and separate the culture more. So I'm reading from the NLT because we're actually then going to be naming the issues that are at stake here rather than all the cultural euphemisms. Whenever you get into scandalous territory, it's all written with euphemisms and a more literal translation will translate all the euphemisms that don't actually work in our own language. So I'm using the NLT because it'll translate what's actually being said and going on here. Um, so she says, come and sleep with me. But Joseph res refused. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her, ser her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Then it says that Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. Now, uh, a brief aside here. Some of you know I'm a bit of a like historical geek, so stay with me. Otherwise, you can come back in three minutes, okay? Uh, so all of history has believed this story uh, until about the last 50 years. And still, all people who respect the Bible just you know believe this story. But... In the modern era, in the last 50 to 100 years, it's been very popular to flip narratives on their head and say, well, what if it was the opposite way around? And part of that is the way academia works, that 
You know, if you're studying the natural sciences, you're finding out new things every day. And if you're studying a book that people have been picking over for 3,000 years, you're probably not going to find many new things. And if you do, you're probably wrong, right? And so, but that's how academia works. It's publish or perish. If you want to get published, you have to say something new. So people are always twisting things on their head and saying, well, what if it was like that instead? And then they get published and it causes a stir and it's kind of a mess. But anyway, there has been this take. Uh, people have said, um, you know, what if, and this is anti-Semitic, but people have said, what if this whole story is a fabrication to make the Jewish people seem like the hero in this case? What if what she accused him of was actually true? And this story, the way it's written in Genesis, is just a bit of a backstory. Now, you guys know in, in academia, people talk like this. In normal life, people normally don't. Uh, but the question is, what if he actually said those things that she accused him of? Uh, and the story leaves us a lot of clues that Joseph's version is true. Of course, we respect the Bible and believe in it. But even if you're here as a skeptic, even if the Bible holds no authority to you and it's just one more historical document, there's actually a lot of clues that this version is absolutely true. For one, Joseph lived through this accusation. He lived through this mess. The standard punishment for a slave sleeping with his master's wife was execution, and that's in a consensual situation. This is rape charges, right? And he somehow lives through this. Also, later in the story, uh, Joseph, in a, much later, once he's vindicated, Joseph is given into uh, a marriage with an Egyptian woman, woman, and he has children, which means that uh, a, a, a certain part of his identity was not taken away from him, if you're following me, in this interchange, which is a second indication of, well, just stay with me on this. So he goes to prison rather than being executed, and he goes on to have children someday, which tells you certain punishments which were not carried out on him as a man. Um, so notice what Potiphar does. He puts him in a prison where the king's prisoners were held. These were high officials, you know, political dissidents, people who were important, but who were on the wrong side of the king. Remember, Potiphar's whole job is to find out intrigue and plots against the king and then make the king safe against those people. Now, in that day, they didn't have institutionalized prisons. And so uh, this is fascinating. You find out in the next chapter that this prison that he was put into was located in none other than the palace of the captain of the guard. Who's the captain of the guard? Potiphar. And so it's like you have to kind of do some digging to figure this out. But the actual prison that Joseph was put into was on Potiphar's own grounds. So it's almost as if Potiphar, this really important, you know, head of the CIA or whatever, had Joseph serving in his home, and then he moved Joseph over to his private prison, his private sort of dungeon for the most dangerous people in Egypt. So he's being confined in the same grounds, but in a different spot. So it's very telling that Potiphar didn't kill him, and that he instead transferred him to his own grounds, to his own prison. It makes sense that if you don't have institutionalized prisons, the head of the captain of the guard might keep his own prison on his own property because there's no other prison to send these characters to. Um, so he, he transferred him to another place on his own ground. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. So here he is again in charge of things. Uh, whatever was done there, he, uh, whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So the picture is becoming much more clear here that Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of this heinous thing and against all custom in the ancient Near East, Potiphar did not execute him. And instead he 
he just transfers him to another area of his influence and tells the warden, hey, this guy is great. You can put him in charge of everything because he'll just make everything run smoothly for you. So why didn't he have him executed or do that other thing we talked about? What you see, if you read between the lines, it's, it's a politically shrewd decision that Potiphar's wife made this accusation. And remember who the husband is. He's the head of, Egypt, of Egypt's intelligence at the time. He's not going to have anything, like, uh, he's not going to have the, the wool pulled over his eyes. No one pulls a fast one on this guy. He knows how to interrogate. He knows how to investigate because he's the head of intelligence. So there's, he has no mysteries really about his wife's character or about Joseph's character. Uh, he has a large staff. He knows how to uh, interrogate. He's shrewd. He's probably been keeping an eye out for things like this for a long time. And a woman who has the audacity to push like that, one of her own you know, household slaves, maybe it's not the first time that something like that had happened. We don't know. But what's clear is, if you look at what Potiphar doesn't do, that he doesn't believe her story. It's clear that Potiphar does not believe her story, but she's his wife. So he has to respond in a face-saving way. He has to do something, but what a waste to kill such a man like Joseph, right? But he has to do something. So uh, instead of killing him, he does this sort of half measure. He puts him in a different area of his own command. He'll still be serving uh, Potiphar's overall you know, job, but he'll be in a different area of the premises and he'll be being punished in a prison, but he'll still be working for Potiphar, right? Potiphar paid good money for this guy, and he's a one in a million. He's incredible at what he does, and he doesn't believe the accusation from his wife for good reason. Um, so he puts him in this prison instead to be languishing there, but also to be working in a similar role as before, just now in the prison. Um, so it says in verse 21 here, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison uh, and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Um, again, the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So sometimes things in your life are going terribly and you don't really think it can get much worse. And then it does. And you're like, well, what now? In Joseph's case, things were going well. He had a promising business future. He was the favorite child of this you know, wealthy patriarch. But his brothers hated him, and they sold him into slavery. And you'd think, well, it doesn't get much worse than that, being sold into slavery in Egypt. And then the rape accusations and the dungeon comes your way. So even though he's at his lowest, he, he thinks there's this silver lining, right? He's sold as a slave, and he must have thought, like, you know, this is terrible. You know, the, the, this isn't my language. These aren't my people. My family's not here. But again, there was that silver lining of, well... I'm rising to a position of importance, even if I have to be in bondage. I'm rising to a position of importance. I'm sought after. I'm esteemed. People think well of me. There are worse ways to be sold as a slave. But then this happens to him, right? So sometimes in our life, I think this happens. Like things are getting really bad, and then just a little glimmer of light comes under the doorframe, right? Like things are getting really dark, and then you just see a little bit of light. And, uh, you know, you think, well maybe there's a way that I can make this work. Even though things are really bad, I see this glimmer of hope. I see this future. And you think maybe I can make this work. But then you get slammed, right? So just as you're at the bottom and you saw this hope and then the hope goes away, the little light, like someone puts a carpet in front of the door or whatever, like the light goes away and the little bit of hope that you had is gone. And you think, 
what am I supposed to do with this? Like, what am I supposed to do now, now that this one thing is gone? Your health, your job, your relationships, your family. So just, just when Joseph had this ounce of hope, this happens. And human psychology is actually clear on this. I'm not a psychologist, but if any of you are, I'd love to ask you more about this. But the most hopeless thing for human beings is not to be completely without hope. Humans are actually good at uh, sort of making their own hope in hopeless situations when you're sure that death is coming. Um, the most hopeless thing is to be at the bottom, to be given just a little bit, like a glimmer of hope. You finally see a way out and then to have that thing ripped from you right before you grab it. That's actually the lowest, uh, one of the most hopeless situations for humans. Like in the concentration camps, they would do this to people. They give them just a glimmer of hope as sort of a psychological torture. They give them just a glimmer of be being able to get out or whatever, and then they take it from them at the last second. And that's a worse uh, sort of torture to the mind than just knowing there's no way out. This is how you hit rock bottom. No, don't raise your hands, but think to yourself, has, have any of you been at rock bottom? Have you ever, like Job, asked God why you were even born? If you read Job, he says, why was I not born unalive? Why was I not born dead? And sometimes it gets so rough that people ask God, why was I not born dead? And Joseph must have been there at some of these points. How in the world could God allow this to happen? Does God have a grudge against me? Is he out to get me? But Joseph had something that a lot of people have forgotten. Joseph knew in that dungeon, he knew that he was not alone. Though he had a many week journey, he was a, a many week journey away from home and nobody shared his belief, no one shared his language, no one shared his, his, his convictions. He knew he was not alone. God was with him. The Bible says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. If Joseph could have possibly known what God was doing, he could have possibly rejoiced in his sufferings, but he didn't know. At least then he had no idea what God was doing. He didn't know that this was all part of God's plan to save the Jewish people from starvation. And we'll get to that in chapters to come. He didn't know that this was part of God's plan to multiply the Jewish people and then eventually send them into the promised land. He didn't know that this was part of the plan to bring that one 1,700 years later who would extend the blessing upon Israel to all of the nations, and that's Jesus. But he knew that God was with him, and that was enough. He would save the very brothers who sought to kill him, but he would never learn. He would never be alive long enough to learn about saving his entire people. And he certainly was not alive long enough on this earth to know about Jesus and what God was doing there. The problem with our life is we don't always get let in on the secret. We don't always live long enough to understand what God is doing with our life and with our sufferings. But God is sovereign. We are stuck on a chessboard, sort of blindly groping. We just see the, what, six or eight squares around us. I think it's eight. You don't have to count them. When I, when I, when I hear preachers say like that, stuff like that, I totally tune out. I'm like, wait, how many squares is it? So anyway, eight. Um, but we are like blindly groping for what we see. But God not only has the whole chessboard, he has thousands of them. And there are thousands of layers deep and thousands end to end because he's outside time and he sees the entire thing. There is no cause and effect in his mind because he's outside time. Every decision we will or have ever made is right before him as if it's, it's happening right now because he's outside of those confines. So we don't understand his plan any more than Joseph understood why he was suffering. 
But the one thing God promises us is that he will be with us. He knows what it's like to be forsaken, and he knows what it's like to be alone in that suffering. He knows, in the person of Jesus, he knows what it's like to ask, why have you forsaken me, and to not get an answer. He knows what it's like to pray for deliverance and not be heard, at least right away. He knows what it's like to be sold into bondage for a purse full of silver coins by those who are closest to you. He goes before us. He suffers as we do. He was tempted as we are. And he despaired even, as we sometimes do. But what's different from us is that Jesus, when he went through these things, he triumphed. He defeated sin and death. And he promises, he promises us that somehow in these deep mysteries, all things will work together for the good of his plan. That doesn't mean that each one of us individuals will end our lives on the top of some mountain of success or having made it or whatever. But the good of God's overall plan, the thing that he sees on the chessboard, will work out to his good, even if he, even if he uses us in harder ways than others. When you do find yourself walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what do you do? The Bible says, fear no evil. God is with you. His shepherd's rod and his staff will comfort you. He will prepare a table before you in the presence of even those enemies who have sold you out. He will anoint your head. Your cup will overflow. And surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what do you do when the last ray of hope disappears? Fear no evil and know that God is with you. In this life, when things get really hard, when you're out of hope and then you think you see a glimmer of light and then that gets trashed in front of you, you can be at the depths of despair. But know that God is with you and that somehow this works together for his good. Often you will see it. If you keep hoping in God and keep following him, he will make these answers clear. But then many of them, we will have to go and be with the Lord to actually see what the plan was all along. So kind of a darker message today, but I wanted to, to, um, to bring us through this because if we don't understand where Joseph has fallen to, we, we can't understand the redemption that comes at the end of this story. Uh, let me pray and then um, I'll do another announcement afterward. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you that we, we don't have to fear evil and that that you are with us, Lord, that you have gone before us, you have suffered, you have been tempted, you have despaired, you have prayed and not gotten an answer in the time that you would like it in. So we pray for strength, Lord, when life does get difficult, when we do face those uh, apparently hopeless scenarios, when, when life has us, has us at the bottom of our story, we pray for um, hope, we pray for trust, and that you would be with us and walk us through that time like you did with Joseph. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.